Section 6 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ken Campbell. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 6 First Sight of the Foe. Ray's gallant half hundred, as has been said, took the route for the north at break of day. Before them spread the open prairie, apparently level and unbroken, for full five miles to the front and either flank, the distant slopes and ridges bounding the level expanse growing more distinct with every moment, and presently lighting up in exulting radiance in response to the rosy blushes of the eastward sky. Scorning the dusty stage road, the troop commander pointed to a distant height just visible against the northward horizon, bade the leading guide march straight on that, then gave the order, right by twos, that he might the more readily note the gait and condition of every horse, and the bearing and equipment of his rider. There was still time to weed out the weaklings of either class, should any such there be. Riding slowly along the left flank, one after another, he carefully scanned every man and mount in his little detachment, then, at quicker pace, passed around to the eastward side of the column, and as critically carefully studied them from that point of view. The light of the quiet satisfaction shone in his fine dark eyes, as he finished for, next to his wife and children, that the troop was raised supreme delight. The preliminary look-over by lantern light had been all-sufficient. This later inspection on the move revealed not a steed amiss, not an item of equipment either misplaced or lacking. Steady as planets, barring the irrepressible tendency of some young high-spirited horse to dance a bit until quieted by the monotony of the succeeding miles, at quick, light-hoofed walk, the sorrels tripped easily along in precise yet companionable couples. One yard from head to crop, said the drill-book of the day, and but for that the riders might have dropped their reins upon the pommel as practically unnecessary. But for the first hour or so, at least, the tendency toward the rear of the column was ever to crowd upon the file-leaders, a proceeding resented not infrequently unless disciplined commands that raise, by well-delivered kicks, or at least such signs of equine disapprobation, as switching tail or set-back ears. But raised troop horses moved like so many machines, so constant and systematic has been their drill, and raised men rode in the perfection of uniform, so far as armament and equipment were concerned. Each greatcoat, precisely rolled, was strapped with its encircled poncho at the pommel. Each blanket, as snugly packed with the sidelines festened upon the top, was strapped at the cantle. Lariat and picket pin, coiled and secure, hung from the near side of the pommel. Canteen, suspended from its snap-hook, hung off the side. Saddle-bags with extra horseshoes, nails, socks, underwear, brushes, and comb, extra packages of carbine and revolver cartridges, and minor impedimenta, equally distributed as to weight, swung from the cantle and underneath the blanket roll. From the broad black leather carbine sling over each trooper's left shoulder, the hard-shooting brown-barreled little Springfield hung suspended, its muzzle thrust, as was the fashion of the day, into the crude socket imposed so long upon our frontier fighters by officials who had never seen the West, save as did a certain writer of renown, from a car window, thereby limiting their horizon. 
Ray despised that socket as he did the shoemaker bit, but believed with President Grant that the best means to end obnoxious laws was their rigorous enforcement. Each man's revolver, a trusty brown colt, hung in its holster at the right hip. Each man was grit with ammunition belt of webbing, the device of an old-time Yankee cavalry man that had been copied round the world, the dull-hued copper cartridges bristling from every loop. Each man wore, as was prescribed, the heavy, cumbrous cavalry boot of the day and generation, but had stowed in his saddle-bags light moccasins and leggings, with which to replace them when, farther afield, their clear-headed commander should give the word. Each man, too, wore the gauntlets of Indian tan buckskin, special pattern that Ray had been permitted to use experimentally. Each man was clad in dark blue flannels, shirt, and blouse, the latter soon probably to be stored with the big weighty boots in Truscott saddle-room at Beecher, with probably too many of the light blue riding breeches, saddle-pieced with canvas, the uniform at the start destined, in the case of veteran troopers, at least to be shed in favor of the brown duck hunting trousers, or even among certain extremists, fringed, beaded, and embroidered buckskin, that which the present chronicler knows no more uncomfortable garb when soaked by pelting rains or immersion in some icy mountain stream. Even the brown campaign hats, uniformly creased, as the fifty left the ford, would soon be knocked out of all semblance to the prescribed shape, and made at once comfortable and serviceable. Add to these items the well-fitted haversack and battered tin-quart cup, for on a forced march of two or three days Captain Ray would have no pack-mills, and the personal equipment of his men was complete. As for the mounts, each sorrel tripped easily along under the sextuple folds of the saddle-blanket and the black-skinned McClellan saddle-tree, with its broad horsehair cincha and hooded wooden stirrups, minus the useless skirts and sweat-leathers. Neither breast-strap, cupper, nor martingale hampered the free movements of the sturdy, stocky little weight-carriers. The black single-rein curb bridle, fastened as to the throat-latch by a light buckle, was slipped over the headstall of the so-called watering bridle, whose toggled and detachable snaffle-bit was generally toted from start to finish of a field scout in the saddle-bags, a twist of the flexible lariat, Indian fashion, between the complacent jaws of his pet, being the troop's ready substitute. Add to this that full, free, and unmutilated, in glossy waves, the beautiful manes and tails tossed in the upland breeze, for the heresies of Algomania never took root in the American cavalry, and you have Ray's famous troop as it looked fresh started from old Fort Frayne this glorious autumn morning of the 1880s, and with a nod of approbation, and it couldn't be better sergeant, to his devoted right-hand man, the veteran senior non-commissioned officer of the troop, Ray rang out of the command, at ease, and placed himself beside the silent young lieutenant at the head of column. As has been said, Ray's senior subaltern was on detached service, his junior, Mr. Clayton, had joined but the year before, and this threw Mr. Field in command of the leading platoon, and to the side of the leading guide. Now, as the senior officer took the head of the column and Mr. Clayton fell back to the rear, the silence of the first mile of march was broken, and, though sitting erect in saddle and forbidden to lounge or slouch, 
the troop began its morning interchange of chaff and comment. Every mother's son of them rejoiced to be once more afield with a chance of stirring work ahead. "'It's time to throw out our advance field,' said Ray, in kindly cordial tone, as he scanned the low divide still some miles ahead and reined in beside the stern-faced young soldier. "'Send Sergeant Scott forward with three men, and the same number on each flank. Corporals, in charge!' He had more than liked Webb's adjutant. He had been his staunchest friend and supporter among the troop and company commanders, and was eager to befriend him now. He had expressed no wish to have him sent on the hurried move, but well he knew the post commander's reason and approved his course. Still, now that Field was being removed, for the time at least, from the possibility of entangling alliance that might prove disastrous in every way in his power, Ray meant to show the mortified, indeed sorely angered officer that his personal regard for him had suffered no change whatsoever. If he could succeed in winning Field's confidence, it might well be that he could bring him to see that there were good and sufficient grounds for the post commander's action, that for Field's own good, in fact, it was a most desirable move. The soul of loyalty and square-dealing himself, Ray had never for a moment dreamed that anything other than a foolish escapade had occurred. A ride by moonlight, perhaps, demanded of her devotee by a thoughtless thoroughbred coquette, whose influence over the young fellow was beginning to mar his usefulness, if not indeed his future prospects. Just what to think of Nanette Flower, Ray really did not know. Marion, his beloved better half, was his unquestioned authority in all such matters, and it was an uncommon tenant of that young matron never to condemn until she had cause. Instinctively, she shrank from what she had seen of Miss Flower, even though her woman's eyes rejoiced in the elegance of Miss Flower's abundant toilets, and, conscious of her intuitive aversion, she would utter no word that might later prove unjust. Oddly enough, that instinctive aversion was shared by her closest friend and neighbor, Mrs. Blake, but as yet the extent of their condemnation had found vent only in the half-whimsical, half-pensulant expression on part of the younger lady, Blake's beautiful wife. I wish her name weren't so near like mine, for Nan had been her pet name almost from babyhood. Vaguely conscious they were both, these lords of creation, Messrs. Blake and Ray, that the ladies of their love did not approve of Miss Flowers, Ray had ridden forth without ever asking or knowing why, and so unknowing was ill-prepared to grapple with the problem set before him. It is easier to stem a torrent with a shingle than to convince a lover that his idol is a shrew. Without a word of reply, Field reined out of column, glanced along the double file of his platoon, nodded a signal, fall out, to Sergeant Scott, and the men nearest him at the front merely said, advance guard and then proceeded to choose his corporals and men of flankers. No need to tell Scott what to do. He had been leading scouts in Arizona long ere Field had even dreamed of West Point. In five minutes, riding at an easy lope, carbines advanced, three little parties of four troopers, each were spreading far out to the front and flank, guarding the little column against the possibility of sudden assault from hidden foe, here upon the level prairie one would think such precaution needless, 
but every acre of the surface was seamed and gullied by twisting little watercourses, dry as a chip at the moment, and some of them so deep as to afford cover even for the biggest pony of the wild warriors of the plains. Then to the front of the barrier ridges, streaked with deep winding ravines, were now billowing against the northward sky, and once among these tangled land waves no chances could be taken now that it was known that the Sioux had declared for war, and that Straber's band was out to join their red brethren in the oft-reoccurring outbreak, until their lands were crisscrossed by the railways and their mountain haunts re-echoed to the scream of the iron horse, next to nothing would start an Indian war. It took so long to reach the scene with troops in sufficient numbers to command their respect, and at this moment the situation was grave in the extreme. There had been bad blood and frequent collision between the cattlemen, herders, hustlers, especially hustlers, and the hunting parties of the Sioux and the northern Cheyenne, who clung to the Bighorn Range and the superb surrounding country, with almost passionate love and with jealous tenacity. There had been aggression on both sides, then bloodshed, then attempts on part of frontier sheriffs to arrest accused or suspected red men an equally determined and banded effort to prevent arrest of accused and identified whites. By due process of law, as administered in the days whereof we write, the Indian was pretty sure to get the worst of every difference, and therefore preferred not unnaturally his own time-honored method of settlement. In accordance therewith, had they scalped the sheriff's posse, that had shot two of their young braves who had availed themselves of a purposely given chance to escape, and then, in their undiscriminating zeal, the Sioux had opened fire from ambush on plotters' hunting parties and the choppers at wood camp, who defended themselves as best they could, to the end that more men, red and white, were killed. The Indians rallied in force and closed in about Fort Beecher, driving the survivors to shelter within its guarded lines, and then— when Plotter needed every man of his force to keep the foe at respectful distance, so that his bullets could not reach the quarters occupied by the women and children at the post, they reached him by night, a runner from the stage station far over to the southeast, on a dry fork of the powder, saying that the north and southbound stages had taken refuge there, with only ten men all told to stand off some fifty warriors, and therefore imploring assistance. Not daring to send a troop, Platter called for volunteers to bear dispatches to Major Webb at Frayne and Pat Kennedy, with half a dozen brave lads, had promptly stepped forward. Kennedy had managed to slip through the encircling Sioux by night and to reach Fort Frayne after a daring and almost desperate ride. Then Ray was ordered forth, first to raise the siege at the stage station, then either to hold the important relay ranch or go on to reinforce Platter as his judgment and situation might dictate. He knew enough about stout adobe walls of the corral on the dry fork, and of the grit of the few defenders, to feel reasonably sure that, with ammunition, provisions, and water in plenty, they could easily hold out a week if need be against the Sioux, so long as they fought on the defensive and the Indians were not strongly reinforced. He reasoned that Straber and his people were probably gone to strengthen the attack, and that having an hour's start at least, and riding faster, they would get there somewhat ahead of him. But one of his own old sergeants, a veteran of twenty years in the cavalry, was now station-master on the dry fork, and all the Sioux from the Platte to Paradise couldn't stampede old Jim Kelly. 
Many a forced march had Ray made in the past, and well he knew that the surest way to bring his horses into action strong and sound at the finish was to move slow and steady at the start. To move at the walk until the horses were calm and quiet was his rule. Then on this bright September day would come the alternating trot and lope, with brief halts to reset saddles, then, later still, the call upon his willing men and mounts for sustained effort, and by sunset he and they could count on riding in, triumphant to the rescue, even though Straber himself should seek to bar the way. And that Straber meant to watch the road, if not to block it, became evident before the head of the column began the gradual ascent of Moccasin Ridge, from whose sharp crest the little band could take their last look for the time, at the distant walls of Frayne. Somewhere toward 7.30, Corporal Connor's foremost man, far out on the left flank, riding suddenly over a low divide, caught sight of a bonneted warrior bending flat over his excited pony and lashing that nimble, fleet-footed creature to mad gallop in the effort to reach the cover of the projecting point of bluff across the shallow ravine that cut in toward the foothills. Stone, the trooper, lifted his campaign hat on high once, and then lowered his arm to the horizontal. Hat in hand, pointing in the direction of the darting savage, was seen, and this, without a syllable having been spoken at the front, word was passed into Ray that one Indian had been sighted far out to the northwest. They may try to hold us among the brakes of the Minipusa, he said to his still unreconciled second-in-command. Field had been civil, respectful, but utterly uncommunicative in his replies to the captain's repeated cordialities. Any attempt to even remotely refer to the causes that led to his being ordered out with the detachment had been met with chilling silence. Now, however, the foe had been seen and could be counted on to resist if his rallied force much exceeded that of the troop, or to annoy it by long-range fire if too weak to risk other encounter. The command halted one moment at the crest to take one long, lingering look at the now far-distant posts beyond the plat, then swinging again into the saddle, moving briskly down into the long, wide hollow between them and the next divide, well nigh three miles across as they reached the low ground and traversed its little draining gully. A muttered exclamation, "'Look there!' from the lips of the first sergeant called their attention again to the far left front. Stone, the trooper who had encountered the first Indian, had turned his horse over to the second man, as had the corporal on that flank, and together they were crouching up along the eastward face of the billowing hillock, while straight to the front Sergeant Scott, obedient to the signal from his left-hand man, was speeding diagonally along the rise to the north, for all three advanced troopers had halted, and two were cautiously dismounting. Ray watched one moment with kindling eyes, then turned to his young chief of platoons. "'Take your men, Field, and be ready to support. There's something behind that second ridge.'" End of chapter 6 Recorded by Ken Campbell